0: The media show that tries to make sense of the chaos. That is our 24 hour news cycle. That was a Twitter joke for anyone playing along at home. We are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, as ever, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly, and I'm flying solo in the studio this eve as Charlie packs up and moves his boxes. He's moving house. Uh, He'll be back next week. Uh, But I do have uh, a big show tonight with a couple of fantastic guests. We'll be talking to senior reporter for the Australian Sarah Elks, who's published a wild series of reports over the last week into some activities Uh, shall we say, and relationships Uh, with regard to veteran Queensland MP Warren Ench. And later on in the show, we're going to talk to Swinburne University senior media lecturer, Dr Belinda Barnett, about um, the announcement by Bild, German-based paper, which is the biggest selling newspaper in Europe, that um, it's making a whole bunch of redundancies, which are... uh, not necessarily all related to, but it has. The editors have, have said that um, uh, a lot of um, jobs in the newspaper can be replaced um, by AI. Uh, it's all part of a hundred million dollar cost cutting, no euro, <laughs> hundred million euro cost cutting program. And we'll be chatting about. We've we've sort of not talked really about the effects of AI <clears throat> in the media world on um, spin cycle, uh, We've slightly been avoiding it because it did seem like sort of the flavour du jour for some time but when the axe is falling it's probably a good time to understand um, what the knock-on effect might be in terms of who is affected in the media landscape. So... Um, Belinda will be join, uh, joining us later in the show to talk more about that. RRR. Sarah Elks is a senior reporter for The Australian in their Brisbane bureau, focusing on investigations into politics, business and industry. Sarah's been nominated for four Walkley Awards and has covered election campaigns, high-profile murder trials and natural disasters over her 15 years with The Australian and was named Queensland Journalist of the Year in 2016 for a series of stories exposing the failure of Clive Palmer's Queensland nickel business. I'm joy saying that. Over the last week, Sarah's investigative reporting into the activities of veteran Queensland MP Warren Ench have been essential reading. With each new report, including some truly wild details that have it uh, reading something like a uh, cross between the thick of it, uh, the thick of it comes to porpoise spit. I am now delighted to welcome Sarah to Triple R to tell us more about this investigation. Hey, Sarah, how are you doing?
1: Hi, Jess. I'm well. And I would watch the shit out of uh, In the Thick of It versus Porpoise Spit. What a great idea.
0: I I think you've got all the makings of the script. What are you doing?
1: <laughs> I know. It is truly wild. And the fact that you mentioned Clive Palmer and then Warren Ench in, like, the same breath reminds me that we do breed them really interesting in Queensland. (laughs) If you add Bob Cutter and then Pauline Hanson into the mix, we've got the full spectrum of just interesting, in inverted commas.
0: Never a dull moment, um, one might say. And, in fact, I was having that conversation with someone earlier. It's like, where does Warren Ench territory end and Bob Catter territory to be- begin? And even just reading back over your articles today, I missed a bit earlier that blew my, blew my mind that, he, that Ench was a former crocodile handler or something.
1: Oh, he's, he's had an incredible career. I, I wrote a feature today that will run in Saturday's paper and I was looking back at Ench's life. And just forgive me for running through a little bit of his resume. Please, do. So he's 73 now and he entered Parliament in 1996 when John Howard became Prime Minister. But before that, he had this ridiculous life where he left school at 14. He's a farmer of Queensland, born and bred left school at 14, followed his dad into working for the railways, where he says he was, I think, chief toilet cleaner at the Mareeba Railway Station when he was a kid, west of Cairns. He joined the Air Force. He was there for 10 years and was an aircraft engine fitter. And then he was a truck driver, a real estate agent, a nightclub manager... <laughs> A unionist at the metal work for the metal workers union at that um, Yubulu nickel refinery that you mentioned in Townsville before it was owned oh by Clive Palmer. Then he caught wild bulls, he trapped crocodiles, he farmed crocodiles, and even now he's a grazier of cattle on on the tablelands west of Cairns. So he's super interesting.
0: Now, Sarah, and have you fact checked all of this? I
1: have well, okay. Hmm. No, there are photos, photographic evidence of him okay, okay. catching crocodiles. <laughs> it's not parliament just his fantasy, speech. <laughs> Well, now, now you've got me wondering. Now you've got me wondering. Um, he's had a really varied career even before he entered Parliament. And then what's so interesting about him is that he's got this, like he describes himself as, you know, by all intents and purposes, on the outside he 's a redneck but mm. on the inside he's I think I said it in the story that 's going in the surveys paper he's got like this progressive soul inside of him he was one of the first um, allies I suppose or advocates for LGBTIQ rights in federal parliament this is before there were any um, openly gay members of Parliament. Now, Warren is married to a woman, um, although he says he doesn't like his sexuality to be defined in any way. Um, Magda Sabansky said he's the straightest man alive, um, so you know you can take that as take that as gospel. What was his I suppose.
0: What was his position on the um, marriage equality vote?
1: He was the person who moved the private members bill. He was sort of the leader of the Rainbow Rebels and he has been a really strong advocate for gay rights within the LNP right back to when he started in the Howard government. He was one of the people who was arguing for um, equal rights for gay couples in things like superannuation and public service pensions all the way back in, I think, the early 2000s. So, He's really, um, he's really put himself out there and made some enemies within his own party because he is quite outspoken about these things. Um, and the the campaign or the legislative campaign on marriage equality was run out of his office in Parliament. Um, so he played a really key role in mm. that. And I think that's why, um, you know, there is a little bit of mystification, I guess, Um about what's going on now. But if you do look back at Enche's history in Parliament, he has had a record of, of marching to the beat of his own drum but sort of walking on the edge of, you know, integrity issues in terms mm. of, in the past, not really declaring all of his commercial interests and letting his personal finances kind of cross over with his professional roles. I think that th- these matters that we've been reporting over the last week have just sort of brought everything into sharp focus and they've maybe crossed the boundary a little yeah. bit now that a little
0: bit more serious. Yeah, I was going to say before we get too misty-eyed about his um, <clears throat> <laughs> integrity and, profession, and progressive values, this series that you've um, been publishing almost kind of one a day or every second day is just, um, yeah, like just a must-read. But let's go back to the first report, which um, which was published last Friday, and the headline, LMP MP Warren Inch gets billionaire Soviet-born donor... Pfizer jab on Torres Strait now there's a lot to unpack mm. there there is a lot to unpack when you <laughs> say it like that <laughs> who is this billionaire what is the relationship with Warren Inch, and why was he um, procuring with with the Torres Strait health authorities a, a COVID Pfizer jab for him on a remote Torres Strait island
1: so many questions, So many questions. excellent <laughs> questions. Well, the story started, we, we, my colleague Michael McKenna, who's the Queensland editor, and I first sort of became aware of this um, Soviet-born billionaire who's called Alex Seckler back in February when the um, Electoral Commission released its donation records for the 2021-22 20, financial year. And they revealed that this company that was wholly owned by somebody called Alex Zeckler had been the single biggest donor to the Liberal National Party in that year, which was the election year. And his company had donated $304,000 to the LNP, which is just, um, it's quite a large donation and not to keep harping on Clive Palmer, but that's like the biggest Um, single donation since the days when Clive to fund the LNP in Queensland. Mm -hmm. So it was quite interesting. So our our, our antenna went up then. We've sort of been digging since then. And yes, it all kind of culminated in that first story, which was about the Torres Strait jab. So Warren Inch is the MP for Lyca, which takes in cans. It goes all the way up. Cape York and then into the Torres Strait, um, up to the PNG border. And what we found out is that one of his good friends is this gentleman called Alex Seckler. He was born in Moldova, he's 65 years old, Moldova at that time was part of the Soviet Union. He moved to Cairns about 10 years ago with his wife, who is a life coach and a relationship breakup expert, and also an Instagram influencer. Anyway, so they set up shop in have they've, they've been involved in property development. They are philanthropists. They've given money to the local hospital. And they've also become friends with Warren Ench and his wife, Yolande Ench. Mm. Lots of um, social events. Violetta Seckler handed out for Warren Ench at the 2019 election. So she was in, you know, full LNP blue regalia handing out. Um, And then it came about that Alex Seckler. this is in July 2021, and if we cast our minds back to that hazy, weird time of the pandemic, this is the time where the vaccine rollout had started. Mm. Pfizer was in really short supply and a lot of people wanted to get Pfizer over AstraZeneca because there were, you know, very rare cases of complications with AstraZeneca. But the problem for Alex Seckler was because of his age, he wasn't allowed under ATAGI rules to get Pfizer. So what does he do? According to Warren Ench in an interview that I had with him last week, Alex Seckler rings him and says, where can I get Pfizer? And Ench says, well, I've heard there's heaps on Thursday Island, which is part of Ench's electorate. Way, way, way up in the Torres Strait. And the important thing to remember is the reason why there was heaps of Pfizer on the Torres Strait was that the Queensland government and the federal government were racing against time to try and get as much of the Torres Strait vaccinated as possible because of um, vulnerability in terms of health issues for Torres Strait Islanders, but also because of its proximity to Papua New Guinea, which um, was a risk of transmitting coronavirus. So, besides all that, Ench decides to zing Torres Strait Island Health Authorities and ask how could his friend, um, Alex Eckler, go up there and get a jab. And according to Ench, they said, we've got plenty. If he turns up, he can have it. If he
0: turns up to Thursday Island. And if he so, just happens to turn
1: up, I, I have to say... You can't just catch, like, the local bus to birthday Island. But also, I mean,
0: apart from the complete <laughs> irresponsibility of having someone fly into a remote vulnerable com- community from the mainland, so mm. also potentially bring um, the corona, you know, the bring COVID um, in from the mainland, there's... Mm. One detail or one, a sentence in your piece that really just made me just do a full body squirm. And it's, The businessman chartered a light aircraft and flew to Horn Island on July 7th with Mr Ench's uh, taxpayer-funded electorate office staffer, Tamara Sroj, who the MP had instructed to show him how to catch a bus and a ferry to Thursday Island to get the vaccination.
1: Yes, so, so I know. It blows your mind,
0: doesn't it? It really does. So, at first glance, that would seem to be a complete misappropriation of taxpayer. I mean, we're already over. We've already stepped over the threshold, but of taxpayer-funded stuff. But Ench seemed to have an explanation when you talked to him. I, I'm really interested to know what he's. What, you you interviewed him, and and he happily talked about all of this. What was his
1: response? Uh, yeah, he was like, well, what's wrong with that, basically? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. this He's a really great guy, this um, Alex. He pointed to the fact that Alex and his wife had donated a lot of money to the Cairns Hospital Foundation at the start of the pandemic, something like $650,000, so they could buy some COVID equipment. Um, so, of course, he would help this incredibly charitable gentlemen just try and get vaccinated. And yes, when I asked well, why did your staffer go on the flight with Seckler, you know, on his privately chartered jet from Cairns to Horn Island, Mr. Ench said, well, I've got an office on Thursday Island. Mm-hmm. So I said, just do some work in there. <laughs> um, and, and show him where to go because he'd never been to the Torres Strait before. So what you've got to do is You fly from Cairns to Horn Island and then you get a bus from the airport to the ferry terminal and then you jump on a ferry and you go across to TI and then I suppose, I haven't been able to establish whether he would have got the jab at the hospital or they were having walk-in vaccination clinics at the Thursday Island Bowls Club often Mm. for um, locals to walk in and get their jab. So Tamara, the staffer, had to show Mr. Seckler where to go chauffeur for him around for the day, chaperone him, and then they both flew back to Cairns together. And what Ench says is, well, it was legitimate because of my electorate office on Thursday Island, so she must have had work to do there. But she flew um, back
0: with with he, she flew back with Sekler on his private plane, so she, she had the same as day. she had as much work to do as it takes for someone to get a COVID jab. Correct. Yep. Yeah yes um we will later come to what might the repercussions be for these um for this detail making it to light but there are three more articles that i want to get to because it is incredible how that was just one that was just the first article in this series um I'm just going to skip past the next one where Dutton puts as much space between himself sure. and Warrenitch <laughs> as possible. And I want to go to your report published on Monday that details the next big revelation, which is an over a, a grant uh, for over $200,000 from the Morrison government's Indigenous Languages and Arts Program awarded to Inch's very much non-Indigenous wife, Yolande, to teach pottery in the remote Queensland Aboriginal community of can Dumaji. Dumaji, ta- yes. So <laughs> can you sorry, how is it pronounced? Dumaji. Dumaji, sorry. yeah. So again there's a lot to unpack there. What? Oh so
2: the much to
1: unpack. <laughs> <laughs> so much to unpack. And you you were talking about before where there's ancient country Sort of end and where does Kata Country start? Well, this is sort of on the this is Kata Country now. So they have neighbouring electorates, neighbouring giant electorates in far north Queensland, and Dorrigo is this tiny, remote um, Aboriginal community in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Uh, it's it's really beautiful, and it's also um, like a lot of vulnerable um, Aboriginal communities. It's got many and varied. Issues, mm. and what we've discovered is that there was this quite large grant, two hundred and thirteen thousand um, dollars over two years, that went from the Indigenous Languages and Arts Program to a company called YLE Enterprises Proprietary Limited. And as you correctly said, that's Yolandi Ench's company. She's the director. She's the shareholder. She's the secretary. And it was for a a pottery, it was for the Doomagie Pottery Studios program. And you might ask, is Yolande Ench a potter? No. Is she Indigenous? Also no. Um, However, she did have a friend who was a potter um, Mm. called Felicity Berry. I spoke to Felicity on Monday, I think it was, and had a great chat with her. Um, she's also a non-Indigenous woman. She's based in Cairns. She does quite cool pottery. She says Mrs. Ann, she's her friend, asked her to fly up to Dormerjee and see if there was a business idea that she could sort out because... And I'll just find the... I'll find the quote because it was quite oh, a Oh, yeah,
0: I think one. I've got Let it me... here. She said, so she could, because she's married to Warren, apply for a grant for her company, which is called Empowering Women.
2: Yes,
1: yes. That was pretty – it was pretty um, eyebrow-raising, some of the things in this conversation. And so Felicity went up there and she decided, well, I haven't got much to do and I know how to do pottery, so I'm going to run pottery classes. And she went up five days a month over the two-year period and collected kids and taught, um, you know, people in the aged care system – uh, pottery, and they and they painted goannas, and they did all that kind of thing. And um, a, according to Felicity, it, the program was very well received. Uh, she had not been to an Indigenous community um, before she started the dolmaging project, so I think I think she was pretty. Uh, she says she was kind of um, I don't know the right word. She was a little bit taken aback by some of the things that she experienced in Dementia, but she said she just fell in love with the kids, and it was a really great project. What was mm. interesting, though, is that one of the, I suppose, boxes that the program had to tick in order to get, um, in order to get federal government funding, was that it was supposed to be. Um, you know, it was supposed to sort of foster Indigenous culture. Mm. And when I asked Felicity what, you know, how it supported the transmission of development and Indigenous cultural heritage and knowledge, she said, well, we just, we didn't make money out of them. We didn't take their works out of the place and sell it on the black market. We were running a free service. We've got the grant to give you something to do, to give you a taste of the arts. We were totally there for them. We weren't there as a side hustle for our own benefit. Um, oh so God. that was interesting. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that was interesting. And then I also spoke to some Doomad- some people from Doormatia yes. on Monday. And, and what did and, they um, say? Yeah, so uh, the, the thought was that why couldn't this project have been run by Local people, so right. Aboriginal people from the community. I spoke to a, a young man called Andrew Ned who had done some pottery at the, with the classes. He said he made an ashtray, um, and he said he would have liked to have seen it run by Indigenous people from the local community. So I thought that that was a really interesting point, um, given that both of these women were non-Indigenous and they were from Cairns. So, which is a huge distance away.
0: There is something kind of sad about this in as much as Encher's electorate takes in most of Queensland's remote Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander communities who need and deserve an MP who will, you know, listen to even just basic um, requests like that. Like, you know, a fund that's called the um, Indigenous Languages and Arts (laughs) Fund, might actually fund local programs to share local knowledge, you know, something that these communities surely are, you know, asking for and in I his electorate.
1: At, well, so, yeah, so the Dormiji program's in um, Bob Cutter's electorate, but. Oh, yes. and Ench made the point that he had nothing to do with the awarding of the of that particular grant. I checked with the Arts Department. They said that, and I thought this was quite interesting, they said that um, Yolande Ench did not need to declare her relationship with a senior member of the Morrison government mm. in order to apply for a grant from the Morrison government, which I thought was quite extraordinary, given you think that that would be... A normal part of a grant application process, declaring whether there could be conflict of interest. Um, but even still, like ha- having a look at some of the other grants that were were awarded from that program, it's for it's to Aboriginal corporations to um, rediscover and preserve traditional languages mm. and First Nations languages, which seems incredibly worthy and important. And it does make you wonder whether there were perhaps um, local programs that may have been funded or whether there could have been a little bit more work to try and set up a local program rather than having fly-and-fly uh, fly out ones in Cairns.
0: That, that's an interesting question. In terms of um, where the rest of that funding went, was this an outlier? Um, or were there other non-Indigenous um, organisations or programs that were funded as well?
1: Well, oh, that's a question I don't think I can answer because yeah, there were there's thousands, of, yeah, okay. um, yep. thousands, well, probably thousands is an exaggeration, hundreds mm. of programs uh, in each financial year that got um, awarded funds. And it was just like, you know, scanning through and I saw the names of some Aboriginal corporations that I recognised mm. from... Queensland, at least, that had been funded. I'm sure there were others run by non-Indigenous people. Um, I I doubt that this would have been, you know, the single one. Mm. Um, But, yeah, it certainly is. I mean, that's maybe something I need to have a better look at. It's a
0: lot of money. I mean, that's, you know, over $200,000. It's a lot of money to fund a program for two years in a remote community um, when yeah, when it's as you said, cans based. But then we're not done yet, Sarah. <laughs> this brings I'm us brings us to yesterday's report, headlined, <clears throat> embattled. And I'm glad he's embattled now. Embattled Liberal MP Warren Inch gave wife one thousand dollar NIDOC Week grant for Indigenous excellence. What is happening here?
2: <laughs> so here, so I did say with the
1: Morrison government grant, the 200 grand, that was separate to Ench. It was, it was nothing to do with him. It wasn't mm. his electorate, you know. So this is an interesting situation where there was a um, Ench put out a press release in November, I think it was 2020, and he... Um, was saying, he, we're celebrating NAIDOC Week here in Leichhardt, celebrated all over the country. It's a celebration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander excellence. And I've given grants to some local organisations to run um, NAIDOC Week events. And here are the grants. There's some um, some for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services and and. Uh, the Torres Shire Council and the Torres Strait and some local state schools and a few other, you know, another Aboriginal corporation. And, oh, YLE Enterprises Proprietary Limited gets $1,000. And you might have a little red flag in the back of your head because where have we heard of YLE Enterprises Proprietary Limited before? That is um, Yolande Entsch's private company and there was no declaration in the announcement that there was a relationship between Mr. Ange and Wiley Enterprises. Um, so I think that is not ideal. You think you'd want to, well, as, as a resident of Leichhardt, if I still lived in Cairns, I think I'd want to know the connection.
0: At very late And yeah. again, you did ask, Warren, about this. And this line in particular is quite amazing, this line in your report. Mr Ench said his wife's company had done a sensational job and put on an outstanding event at the Cairns Villa and Leisure Park, which was attended by a huge number of Indigenous kids and women who came to celebrate. What's the problem with that, he asked.
1: Yeah, you didn't see a problem with any of this, to be honest. Mm. It was quite interesting. He sort of oscillated between, you know, complete defiance of what's the problem, what of it, to a little bit of anger, particularly when I was asking about Yolandi, mm. saying, you know, she does incredible work. She's really hardworking. She does a lot of work with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Cairns and on Cape York and... and even and also um, Papua New Guinea and people in the villages up there and so he he lost his temper a little bit um, a few times and I thought he was going to hang up on me a number of times during the 24 minutes that we spoke but he um, to his credit answered all the questions that I had and answered them more fulsomely than I think I was expecting Um, And on this one he said, well, I just announced it. I didn't have anything to do with the actual picking of that company and I would have declared that there was a conflict, conflict of interest in the grant process. He said it would have been picked by an independent panel. He wouldn't have been responsible for picking it. Let's take all of that on face value, even still when you are announcing the grants, perhaps there should be an asterisk to say, this is my wife's company. And, you know, an independent panel selected these grant recipients.
0: It's just... Um, it does beg a belief that he can't see <clears throat> that there's an issue. Um, I'm interested to know... I mean, obviously, there's a difference between... Well, you know, it, I guess it all adds up. The Over the course of the week, there is another... <laughs> There's another report that we haven't even got to uh, today, where I was quite distracted by the revelation that Warren Ench was a crocodile catcher. But it did get yeah. to the <laughs> it did get to the point that, um, or the headline that according to Ench, Morrison um, actually had to tempt him back to Parliament from uh, retirement in twenty two to run again, and he did so with a commitment to 10 billion dollars in funding for a couple of projects in his electorate um i'm interested to know though what is the what has been the fallout from these articles i guess there you know there are some serious questions raised um especially you know from the uh, you know from bypassing the health uh, regulations around the covid jab to um you know whether he can explain it or not there seems to be some very grey area about the funding that his wife has received from Indigenous funds, arts funds. What was has there been? What's the reaction been in Parliament?
1: Well, I suppose the most sort of significant development that's happened since we started publishing the stories is that in relation to the Torres Strait trip. Um, The Queensland Health Department, so that story came out in the paper on Saturday, I think, and the Queensland Health Department did a preliminary investigation over the weekend as a result, And, and the reason why Queensland Health is involved is that it's one of their health and hospital services on the Torres Strait that sort of is involved in administering the jab, taking the call from Mr. Ench, obviously saying, sure, come on up. Well, not obviously. Mm. The, the claim from Ench is that they said, sure, come on up. Um, so what's happened now is that Queensland Unhelp has referred that whole matter the Crime and Corruption Commission in Queensland. That's our anti-corruption watchdog. Mm. And it'll be now up to the triple C to decide whether or not it meets... They've got quite a high bar of working out whether or not to have an investigation. And so we don't know yet whether or not that, that will be investigated, but it's on their desk now to sort of run the ruler over and see if there's anything, um, you know more seriously problematic than it just not passing the pub test Mm. um so that's that's one issue with the rest I suppose look Dutton actually did come out for this afternoon what's going to be in tomorrow's paper and what's on our website now is that Dutton has decided to defend um, Warren and mm-hmm. Yolande and has come out and said that this is just a grubby smear campaign and that reflects what uh, Queensland opposition leader David Crisafulli fully said during the week that it's all a, a, la- a labour whispering campaign because I'm not sure we've mentioned this yet but oh Yolande is the <laughs> Yolande is the LNP's pre-selected candidate oh to run God. for the state seat of Cairns at next year's Queensland election. Stop it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you would think that, like, from an oh outside right. perspective, you'd think that there's only two people who live in Cairns and that it's Warren Inch and Yolande Inch because they're, you know, who <laughs> <laughs> the LNP wants to run in those seats. But um, oh, anyway, this all is of a- the... <laughs> the LNP and the um, federal coalition are, are standing by the answers. They basically say nothing to see here; it's a grubby smear campaign. But as you might expect, um, both the federal health minister in the Albanese government, Mark Butler, says, "You know, there's really serious questions to answer.
2: Mm.
1: It was really irresponsible of this to happen during the pandemic. Someone going up to the tourist trade." A, a very vulnerable community at a time where Australia was running out of Pfizer. Um, so he said that in parliament, Warren Ench got up and said, I've been grievously misrepresented, not by the Australian, mind you, but by Mark Butler, the federal health minister. He said, there's been no quid pro quo arrangement with Alex Seckler." Uh, he also introduced a new detail that he did not, um, he did not tell me about on Thursday, so that was pretty interesting. So in Parliament on Monday, he said that Alex Seckler was invited to the Torres Strait by the Thursday Island Hospital Authority because oh God. they wanted him to donate an MRI machine to the Thursday Island Hospital. So perhaps that's something that will be investigated by the Triple C if they do get to that point of an I've, investigation.
0: I've got to say, Sarah, this is not reforming this Vic- Victorian... Uh, Victor- <laughs> ..Victorians' view of Queensland, Queensland politics.
1: <laughs> no. Well, no, it's true. it is true about Queensland politics. We're just more interesting
2: than
0: anywhere else in Australia. <laughs> Sarah, I would love to keep going, but I have to stop there. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. This is incredible, and I look forward to reading. I'm, I'm sure we're not done. I look forward to reading all future instalments. Thank you again, Sarah. Thanks, Jeff.
2: Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app.
0: Dr Belinda Barnett is a senior lecturer in media at Swinburne with research interests in digital cultures, social media, data privacy, platform regulation and the history of digital media. She's the author of Memory Machines, The Evolution of Hypertext. Tonight Belinda joins us to talk about the recent announcement of redundancies by Europe's biggest selling newspaper, Build, due in part to... AI Replacing Key Editorial Functions and uh, what this means um, for the future of the industry. Welcome, Belinda. Hi. How are you going? Oh, yeah, it's okay. (laughs) Can you fill us in on the detail of this announcement?
2: Um, Sure. So, uh, the company has announced that it's making 200 redundancies um, and at the time had said that it was connected to AI but have in the past day or so actually um, issued a press release saying that it's not because of AI. Yeah, they've walked it back, haven't they? Yeah. Mm. So, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting announcement. But that said, I mean, there are there are other media organisations that have... That are, that are doing similar things. So it's not like it's the first company to, um, the first media company to think, oh, we could save some money if we got an AI to do the sub-editing. So...
0: Yeah, could you talk to the specific roles or as much as you know of that um, are probably the most at threat, um, you know, given... It's quite it's quite a quick development when you think about it. You know, I think um, there's been a lot of... Uh, sort of theorizing about the, you know, the sort of future of AI and whose jobs are going to be replaced. But it, but this is quite a, a quick development um, in a in a, a complex media system. What are the roles that that are at most at threat and why?
2: Well, right now, um, generative AI, particularly things like Chat GPT. Um, are really good at writing convincing stories that are grammatically perfect, Um, kind of convincing – can I swear? Yes. No. (laughs) Uh, Convincing bullshit is one way I heard um, an AI professor describe it. So Mm -hmm. that's the current state of affairs. But it does tend to make stuff up um, and fabricate facts so – What it can do really well at the moment, um, and if you're not using it as a writer, you know, I'd recommend playing around with it, is it's really good at editing, sub-editing, correcting, um, kind of refining your work, which is not good news for proofreaders and um, sub-editors. But what it's not good at is critical thinking um, Mm. and checking the facts um, and... Those things really are the traditional, um, you know. It's that's that's a, the wheelhouse of a journalist. So um, I don't know that what, that there's going to be no jobs for no. journalists in the future. It might just um, change actually very quickly, probably this year, um, and you, you'd be working more alongside AI. And it assume the role, a more kind of executive role of is this true or not true um, and basically fact-checking and approaching it with a critical eye because mm. AI doesn't really have that right now. Is it a little
0: bit like, I guess, um, a lot of sort of, um, there was a lot of <clears throat> outcry in the past few years about this, the... Um, the way that photographers in news environments were being sort of um, pulled out, I guess, or becoming redundant and journalists were in some situations expected to kind of take their own photos or start creating more of their own content, are they going to have to become more like sort of single operators where they almost have to write their pieces and then use AI to... Edit and sub edit their own work? Is that what you're sort of envisioning? Yeah,
2: Uh, well, it's already headed to journalism, is already, I mean, convergence has come and gone, and Mm. you're expected to have digital skills these days. So they're already, a journalist is already a one man band in a sense. But I think the role will change, Um, and you're right, with the uh, onset of other technologies recently journalists have had to really quickly adopt it and learn it and run with it and they're going to have to do this too they'll have to do it again quite quickly
0: before builds sort of backtracked on their announcement were they specific at all in terms of or did they go any further in in terms of their explanation of why all the kinds of um, ways that ai was contributing to those redundancies
2: they they're they want to be a digital-only um, platform going into the future, and so they've kind of said that. Um, Does digital-only
0: mean no humans?
2: <laughs> uh, it could. It could mean no. Wow. No, it doesn't mean no humans. I think they're shutting some regional um, outlets mm. and focusing on digital. But the um, I think the C, not the CEO, the head coconut. Um, had said that uh, AI is really good at um, information aggregation and mm-hmm. they wanted to use it for that in the future, which it is. It's great at going out and AI like ChatGPT is great at giving you a response in four seconds to a question that would usually require a bit of research. So it uh, it is really good at information aggregation, but... Yeah, there are some things that there's you still need a journalist to do, and Mm. some outlets like I think um, CNET um, and um, Buzzfeed also they they use AI now um, to generate some content, but they have a journalist um, fact check it basically.
0: Oh, that's a boring job. it, it does sound a bit boring, like i are mean, just am checking sh- the machines. But um. I'm, sh- I'm sure that a lot of journalists use a uh, use ChatGPT to help with research because it is phenomenally quick. And you would never, you obviously have to be, you know, discretionary about how you use that research. But there is, it is amazing how you can kind of get a broad understanding of a topic pretty quickly. Um, if you give the right prompts to chat GPT.
2: Yeah, as long as you take it with a grain of salt. So uh, it really actually does generate misinformation. And uh, if it it can't find a reference, for example, it invents people. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's quite funny to watch it, Uh, but you can't rely on it to um, actually find the facts. No. And I don't see that changing in the immediate future it's more uh, and this is what the training data that I've seen says is true
0: is this is um, there also um, is it also sort of information bias writ large in as much as you know this was always the complaint about Wikipedia is that you know a huge percentage of people who input information to Wikipedia are of <coughs> you know a, a pretty kind of similar Uh, background culturally and gender-wise. And so it's um, just sort of ignoring swathes of historical um, character, you know, people, people, women, (laughs) black women in history uh, and their achievements. Is there a similar um, situation in in terms of, you know, media relying on AI for information?
2: Oh, absolutely. I guess it's complicated um, in that, with respect to the output of an AI, you need to know the data that it was trained on in order to know where the biases are. So, what has or hasn't it seen and processed, and which types of information has it got more of? And um, yeah, the, this is the kind of thing we need regulation for. So we don't we we've got really no insight into the data set that um, Chat GPT was trained on. We've got some. Ideas like it cuts off in sometime in 2021 and um, mm-hmm. it uses certain sets, but we really don't have all that much insight. And perhaps we need to have insight into these things if we're to control bias, for example.
0: Have you heard any sort of murmurings of of it being sort of used more extensively in media locally or or do you think it's just sort of again generally being used as a research tool and and we're not seeing you know wholesale um, use of AI to write produce content uh, locally yet no I don't think and I
2: don't know that we're seeing wholesale use of AI even in the places that are using it so Cnet's not kind of publishing heaps of AI articles and then um, not having them checked, for example. It's uh, it's just being used as a, a a tool, like an augmenting tool to make things more efficient. Mm. But there's always a human at the moment on the end. So I don't know where all this is going in 18 months' time, but at the moment it's the... Um, AIs are really good at creating convincing articles that have misinformation in them so that can have misinformation in them so I think that news organisations will end up working with that Yeah, of um, course Like it's really obvious
0: Belinda, thank you so much Unfortunately you're going to have to leave it there We will chat again, no doubt Okay, see ya Thanks, bye
2: and that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform,
0: and you can follow us on Twitter at Nad at Lily Juice,
2: and at The
1: Shuffle Diary.
0: You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via on demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content. Like this.